Thank you for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in seven different locations. We hope that today's message encourages and empowers you on your spiritual journey and helps you grow deeper in your relationship with God. To learn more about Our Savior's Church and how you can get involved, you can visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Are we doing okay today? Y'all excited to be in church? I am. I'm so glad you came. Labor Day weekend. Um, you could have been a couple other places, but you chose to, came here, to come here today. Um, I'll do my best uh, to get us where I think God wants us to be. Look at your neighbor. Long and uncomfortable. A <laughs> little awkward. Okay, look at the other neighbor that you just ignored. <laughs> Should be a little more awkward than it was before. Tell them both y'all buckle in. Pastor Don's got a word. We've been walking through this series called According to Peter, and this is all that it is. This is all that it is. We've, we've been looking at Peter's letters to the New Testament church. Peter was one of the disciples that walked with Jesus, and 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples were led by the Holy Spirit. And Peter walked with the Holy Spirit. And 30 years after, he wrote a series of letters. We know them in our Bibles as 1 Peter and 2 Peter. That's actually the first letter that Peter wrote and the second letter that Peter wrote to the New Testament church. And we've been looking at life lessons and we've been looking at what it looks like um, to be a Christian according to Peter, according to these letters. We walked um, pretty briskly through 1 Peter and we've tried to walk a little more briskly through 2 Peter, but I came across this section in 2 Peter that's got so much truth in it. I have to just kind of mine down just a little bit to get all this treasure to the surface. And what has started off a line-by-line line series has kind of got us at a point where we're word-by-word. Word. Have y'all enjoyed the last several weeks just digging through Peter? Um, I've, uh, last week we spoke about knowledge, um, and we talked about the importance of knowing God's truth. And I told you that we need to be readers. How I many remember that? I had, a man, I had a man come up to me after service and Pastor Don, I just need you to know I do a lot of reading in the deer stand, um, by the way. Just, just so you know, I do a lot of reading in, in the deer stand. I said, I believe you. I believe you. But it made my day this week when I got a text message um, from another man in our church. Here's what he said. He said, good morning, Pastor Don. I re-listened to the message from this week, and I started to put, the practice, put in the practice of reading break reading that you suggested. For the first time in my life, I read for 40 minutes, reading out loud in my truck on lunch. How I many you know that made a pastor's week right there? Man. Our key passage that we're walking through, we're going to go through it again. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Um, we're going to dig in uh, today and see what God has for us. His divine power, it says. Not our efforts, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Here's what we've learned in this passage. Peter's not so much concerned with us getting to heaven as much as he is about us living heaven-like while we're here on earth. That there's a divine nature that's been promised to us that as we walk in the presence of God and to become more Christ-like, we can live like Christ lived here on earth. Having escaped from the corruption, it says, 
that is in the world because of sinful desire. In other words, there's God's part, salvation that's a gift, and then there's our part that we walk it out as we're Christians. Here's what it says, verse 5. For this very reason, make every, what? what's that word there? Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and what? Increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. In other words, you won't be stuck in neutral trying to live this Christian life if these things are at work and increasing in you. For whoever lacks these qualities, verse 9 says, is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And I would say my first according to Peter's statement of today looks like this. The promise of eternity in heaven is a gift from God. You can't earn it, but... The life you've always wanted to live here on earth is going to take some effort and it's going to take some practice. Sometimes the difference between the life we're living and the life we know is available to us has nothing to do with what God has provided for us. It has everything to do with the amount of work and effort that we put forward here in this life. And Peter lists for us seven different qualities, seven attributes that will supplement our faith. And we've been walking through each one of them. I'm going to show you all in one list. Here are those things. These are the lists that Peter gives us. We've covered some of them. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Now listen, at face value, our English language and our American culture makes you think that this is a shopping list. Like you just go through life and you work on this one and you add it to the basket and you go through and you work on this one and you add it to the basket. Kind of like the Boy Scouts, right? Or the Brownies where you get a badge. You know, I did that thing and now I've got it and, and I worked on faith and so I've got that and I work on knowledge next. And it's not how this is presented to us in Scripture. Here's what Peter would like us to know. This, this is really, he didn't say go get these things. He said supplement your faith with virtue. He said, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, your self-control with steadfastness. Here's the implication. Not only does each one of these add to the previous one, in a way, each one kind of depends on the previous one. To add faith, or to faith add virtue, he's saying, listen, having faith is critical, but this world will squeeze you and deform you to compromise if you don't walk in the virtues of godly character. Your, your virtue, your godly character will help your faith. When he says to virtue, add knowledge, here's what he's saying. What point is it to try to amass a whole bunch of head knowledge if it isn't knowledge filtered by godly character? It's not just about knowing more. It's about knowing more of the right things. And don't even try to add self-control to your life if you haven't developed the discipline of knowledge. That's the picture. You add each one in the practice of the other. You get better at each one. And as you get better at each one, it makes it easier to work on the others. Y'all with me? It's not a list. It's a, it's a, it's a function that he's wanting us to see. Today, we're going to cover two more on the list. Everybody say self-control and steadfastness. 
Now listen, buckle in, curl your toes under a little bit, because self-control affects all of us. How do we get from knowledge to self-control? That should be the big question. Big, long list, faith, virtue, virtue to knowledge, knowledge to self-control. Seems like a big jump. Look at this. It's not as far off as you think. Here's self-control. Self-control is just the ability to do what you know to be true. The ability to do what you know to be true. How many of you have done something that you knew was not the right thing to do? Yet it was hard to do the thing you knew to do, so you just settled to do the thing you wanted to do instead of the thing you knew to do. Some of y'all catch up. What did he just say? How many do's did he, did he say? My friend earlier in the text message was doing just that. He knows now that leaders are readers. That's truth. Now that he has the truth, he's working on developing self-control to develop the discipline to sit down and read. You see how that works? To knowledge, we add self-control so we can do the things that we now know we need to do. This is a phenomenal word in the Greek language. In kratea, in means in, kratos means dominion or authority. It literally means having dominion within. The idea is this, that we'd be holding oneself in the ability, in other words, to take a grip on yourself. You ever heard the phrase, get a grip? That's where it comes from. That's the same idea. Look at your neighbor and say, get a grip, man. Rather than allowing the vices of this world to get a grip on you, self-control allows you to get a grip on yourself. And in the language and culture of the time, this word in kratos would be used to describe the athlete that had really learned to master himself. And the opposite word, akrates, would be used to describe the drunkard who had gone out the night before and got wasted and was useless that day. That's the concept that this word is coming. Paul shared this uh, with the young preacher Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. A little long on the passage, but let's, let's, let's look at it. But understand this, that in the last days, how many of you think we might be in the last days today? Okay. This was written a long time ago. Look how crazy and descriptive it is of what we're walking through. In the last days, there will become times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. That one usually gets some comments. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable slanderous, oh, here's our word, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Here's what that means. I can look like I'm doing all the right things when people are watching, but when I get alone by myself, I succumb to some of the temptations that I've been struggling with time and time again, right? I I like the appearance of godliness, but I deny its power to really do something in my life to to change me. I, I lack the ability to do what I know I need to do. And here's what scripture says to do with those kind of people. Be careful. It says, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Here's what it's saying. They can't do what they know to be true. They can't do what they know to be true. I've got three questions for you today. Three questions, 
and then we will then we'll close. Here's the first question. What does it look like to have self-control? What does it look like to have self-control? Second one is where in my life should I start working on self-control? And then the last one, why is it important for me to have self-control? Let's look at the first one. What does it look like to have self-control in my life? One of the best ways I know to describe this idea to you is with regards to restraining passions and appetites. Say that word with me, appetites. Appetites. Every appetite you have is an opportunity to exercise self-control. In other words, to be in control of your appetites. Appetites are like emotions. They're not inherently wrong until they start leading you in the decisions and the choices that you make. How many of you have had some emotions that have got you in trouble? Yeah. If you let your emotions lead you, you will make some mistakes. Your appetites are the same way. Some of us have very healthy, God-given, natural appetites, but we've taken those appetites and we've given them the forefront, and now we're making decisions based on that appetite instead of the truth of God's word. I see this even at play in my young children when I say, hey, why did you do that? I don't know. No, you did that because you wanted to. You knew it was different. It It may be more accurate to say, I did know, but I chose not to. And when we're talking about self-control, I have to love you enough to say, most of the time you're tripping up, not because you didn't know any better, but because you did know any better, you just didn't have the control of your own appetite. Am I preaching to anybody here at all today? Okay, just checking. In 1972, there was a psychologist named Walter Michel. He conducted the study on delayed gratification with young children. Here's what he did. He took a marshmallow and put a young child in front of him, and he said, hey, this is a marshmallow, and it's yours. You can have it. I'm going to set it right here, and I'm going to leave for a few minutes. And this marshmallow is yours. You can absolutely have it. But if you will leave it here until I come back, you can have two marshmallows when I get back or whatever treat um, that you want. He had a couple to choose from. And here's what they did. He would leave, and they'd leave that young child alone with that marshmallow that he'd already given them permission to eat. And that child had a choice to make. Do I jump into the thing that I want right now because it's right in front of me and I can have it? Or do I delay my gratification? Do I deny myself something that I could have now for the hope of something more later? Some of the children did really, really good. Some of them... Scott was right up, didn't even wait for him to clear the door when he went through this. Some of them had the self-control to wait, and some of them did not. And here's what they did. They followed the lives of these children long after the study. And here's what they found. Those that were, that were unable, or those that were able to wait to indulge, those who demonstrated this, this delayed gratification of the self-control, they actually tended to have better life outcomes. They had higher SAT scores. They, they got better um, promotions at work. They, they had educational attainment. They had healthier body mass indexes. The ability to say no to one marshmallow actually played out over the course of their entire lives. And here's my question for you today. How about you? How about you? Sure, you may be able to say no to one marshmallow, but can you say no to that extra plate or to that dessert when it passes by you? Mm. Mm. You know your pastor loves you. How about can you say no to the temptation to scroll 
or click that link when you know what's going to be on the other side of it. Right? Can, can you do that? What about you not being able, or what about being able to not fly off the handle when somebody angers you? Right? Our whole society is geared not to help you with this. You do understand that, right? There used to be a day, right now you can buy now and pay when? Oh, buy now, pay later. Have what you want now, have the cost later. Back in the day, they used to have this thing called layaway, young people. And it was the opposite. You would pay now and have later. You'd go to the store, and if you didn't have enough money to buy the thing that you wanted, you would take it to this counter in the back, and they would go put it on a shelf and write your name on it. And you could make two or three payments, and when you were done, bring in that last, I got to go get something off layaway. That was the happiest day of your life. We don't, we don't know nothing about that now because you can buy now and pay later. How can you raise children in a world that teaches them that you can have what you want now and you can pay the price later? Some of us are still paying for the things that we have asked for now with our own appetites that led us to. Look at what Proverbs chapter 25 says about this very thing. Verse 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Left without walls. What happens to a city when it's left without walls? No defenses. Susceptible to attack. Falling for the same things over and over again. A man or a woman with no self-control is like a city with no ability to say no to the things that are coming at them. The enemy doesn't have to worry about getting into our lives. He just has to get us focused on things that we want now. Teach us not to have self-control because not having self-control leaves us susceptible to his attacks. Y'all with me today? He says, to virtue add knowledge, to knowledge add self-control. First, we learn the truth of what to do, and then we start doing it. I need you to understand this. I lack self-control when there's an area of truth that I know, but I'm unable to do it consistently. That's just an area where you lack self-control. I trip up in the same sin pattern over and over again. Here's my second question for you today. Where in my life should I start working on self-control? What are the areas that I should start? Here's, here's the first one. Three areas to be working on your self-control. Your self the first one is your sexuality. An inability to restrain sexual passions or appetites will cost you. You should start working on your sexuality. Here's the second one. Food. An inability to refrain from specific types or quantities of food. Did Pastor Don really just put our sexuality on part with food? It's an appetite. It's an appetite, and if you don't get control of it, it will get control of you. It will have you now, and you'll continue to pay later and later and later. Sexuality, food. Here's the third one, anger. What's anger? Anger is an aggressive or reactive attempt to regain lost control. I feel like this happened and I didn't want it to, so I'm going to get angry. And if I get loud enough, I'll, I'll force you or subjugate you into doing what I say. It's a grasp at control. No, you don't need control of them. You need control of you. If you had control of you, that thing wouldn't anger you. It may disappoint you. It may upset you, but it won't anger you. My dad used to have this phrase that he would teach me growing up. Son, he who angers you controls you. 
It's a very known tactic in debate and speech that if you can get the other person angry at you, they'll lose the upper hand, and you can usually win most arguments. The person with the level head is the person who isn't angered. Some of us are losing conversations and losing aspects of our life through our anger. We're losing relationships. People don't trust you anymore because they're not sure which one of you they're going to get. My children no longer confide in me because they're not sure how I'm going to respond. That's not their issue. That's your issue. If you'd have self-control, they would be able to predict how you're going to respond in those moments. You'll feel safer for them to come to them. I'm preaching to anybody here in the room today. And listen, there are many, many others, but these three are the ones that it looks like in our culture today the enemy is, is coming after. If we can handle these, then I think we'll be okay. Let's get very practical, then I'm going to get inspirational, and you can go get some good lunch. Sometimes the struggle with our appetites, if we're honest, sexuality, food, and anger, really is just simply a result of putting ourselves in the wrong situations, isn't it? I allowed myself to go somewhere, be somewhere that I shouldn't, and that temptation that I knew was going to be there waiting for me was, was heavier, right? It was heavier. Look what Romans 13, 14 says. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Some of you are serving up that buffet to your, to your flesh, and you're like, why did I respond that way? I'll tell you why. Because every time you've been in that situation, you've done that very thing. No, no, but I'm different. Yeah, but it's not. It's not. It's the same thing. That's still going to look the way it looked the last time you looked at it that you shouldn't have looked at it. That thing that you're, that you're going back to over and over again when you think nobody else is watching, it's still there. And it's custom formed just for you. We've got to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What are you, what are you talking about? There's no filter on your internet devices. You're watching movies and shows with sexual situations and themes. And you're wondering why that's all you think about during the day. You're making provision for your flesh and that's what's, what's happening. You, you go grocery shopping while you're hungry. I mean, that'll get you on your, on your calories and your budget. I mean, be careful. We're laughing because it's true. It's, it's true. There was a man trying to kick a donut habit, and things had kind of gotten away from him a little bit, so much to the point that his doctor was concerned he was going to develop diabetes and at a doctor's visit, he was recounting the last failure to his doctor. And he, he said, man, I told God. You know, here, here's the problem with the donut story. It's, it's on the way to and from work every day. So he's got to pass it. He said, but I know it's not healthy for me. So I told God that if I drove by, if there was an open parking spot right by the front door, then I would go in. I only had to drive around the park and around the block four times. And there it was. So I went in. We laugh, but some of us are circling the things that tripped us up three, four, five, six times. I'll tell you why. Romans tells you. You made provision for your flesh. You made provision for your flesh. How about anger? How about anger? Experts will tell you, you got to do your best to avoid stressful situations. You got to avoid personal triggers and conflict prone situations. In other words, send the kids to grandma's house regularly 
and you can work on your anger issues. Here's, here's the truth. I'm going to be very practical. Here's, here's what I've learned in life. In the absence of internal discipline, external structure needs to be applied. In the absence of internal discipline, external structure needs to be applied. But listen, if you only rely on external structure too long, it will keep you immature. It'll keep you, what are you talking about? My children at a young age, they lack the discipline to look away from exploitive images that come up on their devices that they may encounter. So here's what I do. I add some external structure to their lack of internal discipline. I put a filter on our internet. That external structure provides for where they're weak internally. But listen, there will be a time where they're no longer on networks or internet or devices that I control. So I have to have regular conversations about what good images and bad images look like and the way that our brains can become easily addicted to harmful behaviors. External structure is needed where internal discipline is lacking, but if you only rely on those external structures, if there's no effort to grow, if you're not working on your self-control, you're going to become immature. Several years ago, I tore my ACL in my left knee, and it was very, very difficult for me to walk. I had crutches. I lacked something internally. It was weak, so I added external structure on top of it. But what would happen if I stayed with those crutches too long? Is my leg going to get stronger? No, actually the opposite's going to happen. It's important to work on our self-control because we're going to need it one day. And while you've got weak self-control in these areas, you need to find some external structure, some relationships, some accountability. Avoid some privacy. Give somebody your passwords. Do everything you can to make sure that you're supplementing your self-control while you work on it. External structure is necessary, especially early on, but you've got to develop it. You've got to develop so you can be able to do what you know to be right. Here's our last question for the day. Why is it important for me to have self-control? This is where our next word in Peter's list comes into play. He said, with knowledge, add self-control. With self-control, add steadfastness. Say that word with me, steadfastness. The two Greek words come together to form this one word for us. One means to be under, and the other one means to stay or to abide. Literally, the picture here is to remain underneath a discipline, subjecting yourself to something you wouldn't naturally do, and then remaining there despite the desire to quit or to rebel. That's what steadfastness means. It's literally to stay under its endurance. Steadfastness is endurance. Now, how do we get from self-control to steadfastness? Fastness. Listen, it's, it's so much more than just endurance. It's, it's not stay under and then look back at all the things you're missing or doing without in life. That's what the enemy would want you to do. Oh, those Christians aren't having any fun. Since you gave your life to Jesus, you're not as cool as fun. They want you to look back at all the things while you try to stay under this discipline that you're adding to your life. No, no, no. Steadfastness is a looking forward. It's, it's stay under while looking forward at what you're going to receive. I'm putting myself underneath this self-control because there's a picture of something better for me down the road. I'm not looking backwards. I'm looking forwards. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 2, gives us a picture of this when it comes to Jesus. Look at this. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance, there's that word, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set where? Before him, forward-looking, endured, there's that same word, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what we've been talking about. The way Jesus lived, we can live. We have self-control so that we can do the things we know to do, and then we have steadfastness so we can keep doing those things. We can keep doing those things. Here's what Peter's telling us. Learn to do what you know, then keep doing it. Learn to do what you know, and then keep doing it. You got to understand in the Christian walk, we don't work at developing just any kind of knowledge. We work at developing knowledge in line with Christian character. And we don't just follow our appetites. We develop self-control to be able to do what we know to be Christ-like. But it's not just to do it once so that we can brag about it, that we did it. No, no, no. We develop steadfastness, the ability to keep doing it over and over again to your faith. Add virtue to your virtue, add knowledge to knowledge, add self-control to self-control, add steadfastness. Do you see how Peter's building this truth up for us? I want you to think about steadfast this way. Stay steady. Stay steady. Pastor Don, what what do you mean? You and I live in a world that is constantly changing, but we serve a God who is not. How many of you know that? He does not change. Now, I don't know about you, but I talk to people every single week that are scared, they're frightened, they're insecure, they're desperate. Their whole world is turned upside down. Their whole world is shaken by things that are going on. And here's what happens in the middle of an earthquake. People reach out and they grab to the most stable thing they know. That'll happen to your life. Some of you got to this very place because there was some shaking in your life and and you reached out to something that was stable. And you thought, maybe, just maybe, that that they know what what they're talking about. Three weeks ago, I spoke with a man who, by all accounts, his life is coming undone. He's a man I've known for a very long time. I knew him before I was a Christian. And I asked him, I said, man, why, why are you calling me? Here's his response. Because your life is in a mess. I'm calling you because your life is in a mess. Essentially, he was saying, you have something that I don't. You're steady where I'm not. You're stable. You're the closest thing to God that I know, and I don't know how to get to him, so I'm coming to you. Why do we need to have steadfastness? So we can be stable and steady for when others reach out to us. I know they're making fun of you. I know they're giving you a hard time. I know that there are so many times that you want to go do the things you used to do, but you know different now, so you can't. And it's cost you some relationships. But I promise you this, if you'll keep steadfast, stable, looking forward, those people that are making fun of you now will be reaching out to you tomorrow. If you loved me, you'd come hang out with me. No, no, no. I love you, so I'm going to go get strong. So when you realize you're going down a dead end, you'll have somebody that you can hang on to. It is the most Christ-like and loving thing I can do 
is to go get right with God so that I can be there for you when you realize where you're headed is in the wrong place. It's not selfish, it's strategic. It's strategic. If you will live this Christian life long enough, steady enough, over time, I promise you, people will take notice and they will reach out to you. And it is the joy and the delight and the most fulfilling thing any Christian would ever have to lead somebody else to a relationship with Jesus. Peter's writing this letter, and he's saying this. He said, I can't go talk to all the people around you. I wish I could. But if you will live this way in the midst of this world that doesn't, they'll take notice of you. The guy that called actually wanted me to get on the phone with all, all, all these people in his life that are, that are not doing right. He said, no, no, you talk to them, and, and I'll set it up. You can, you can talk to them. I said, how about you start living for God the way God wants you to live? And those people around you will notice that. You living for God the way you should? That's going to speak to them louder and more clear than anything I could ever say. There's something about leading others that requires me to have self-control and steadfastness. Church New Iberia needs you. How many of you are sitting next to an empty seat right now? Raise your hand. There's an empty seat right next to you. How many of you know somebody in that empty seat next to you? Yeah. How about we live our lives in a way that gives them something stable to hold on to, to look to, and to look forward? There's a way to live your life with self-control and steadfastness. And if those qualities are in you and increasing you will be effective and fruitful in this life. I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. I think we have a lot to think about today. And maybe I described you. Life is shaken. Maybe there's some things going on that are seemingly impossible. I, you may say, Pastor John, I don't know what to do. You don't understand. I, I didn't even know if coming to church today was going to help. But at the same time, you would say, you know what, I'm glad I did. If even a fraction of what you said today, Pastor Don, is true and available to me as a Christian, you've got my attention. I want you to listen to these words of Jesus. Your head is bowed, your eyes are closed, nobody's moving around. I just want you to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in me as I read these words to you. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He goes on to say, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Wouldn't that be nice to have some peace in your life? He says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away. But look at this promise. He says, I will come to you. Is that true, Pastor Don? Is Jesus really the Son of God? If I surrender my life to him, can I be made right with God? Can I have that same stability, that same self-control, learn on that same knowledge, start developing that same character, that I won't be shaken the way that I'm shaken right now? 
you may be asking yourself that very same question. And a group of religious Jews were asking the same during Jesus' time. This was Jesus' response to them. They asked him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you were not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What does it mean to have that kind of stability? What does it mean to be among his sheep, to be, become a Christian? What does it mean to be born again, to be permanently and forever saved from an eternity without God? I would tell you it looks like ABC. A stands for admit. To be among his sheep, you have to be able to admit that you've made some choices that are contrary to God's best for you. You followed the wrong appetites. You've made your own decisions. And as a result of that, sin has entered your life and it has separated you from a righteous and loving God. If you want to be among God's sheep, you need to be able to admit your sin. B stands for believe. Maybe now today for the first time you can believe that God sent his son Jesus, his only son, to live a sinless life, a life you couldn't live to pay a debt that you couldn't pay those choices that you made, that sin in your life racked up a bill that you weren't able to cash. But because God sent his son Jesus, lived that sinless sacrifice, his death was payment for your sin. And maybe today for the first time you believe that God sent Jesus just for you. A is admit, B is believe, C is confess. Confess what? Confess Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. Oh, everybody needs a Savior when things are shaken. But it's that intentional decision to make him Lord of your life, that his way is the best way. His ways are higher. No longer will I look to my appetites to make decisions. I'm going to look to his word. I'm going to look to what he says to do. That's what it means to have Jesus be Lord of your life. If you're here today and you've never asked the Holy Spirit to come into your life, if you've never asked Jesus to lead you in this way, I want to invite you right there where you are, every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody's looking around. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I just want you to come face to face with the decision that you need to make today. And if that's you and you want me to pray with you to be born again, I'm going to ask you to do two very simple things. One, I want you to lift your hand. And two, I want you to look up at me all across this room right now if you'd like me to pray with you be born again. Lift your hand and look up at me. Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. I see your hand. Yes, sir. It's time. Yes, ma'am. I see your hand. Proud of you. Yes, ma'am. Your hand is raised, but you're not looking at me. I see you. Thank you. Up in the balcony, all three of you, same row. It's no coincidence all three of you are standing together. 
I see you. Thank you for raising your hand. In the top corner, I see you. If you raise your hand, you can put them down. One more time, I'm going to pray. But if you say, Pastor Don, I didn't raise my hand, but, but I want to, I need to. Let me give you one more opportunity before we pray. I didn't raise my hand before, but I want to raise it now. Right now, raise it and look up at me. I'm glad I asked again. It puts a smile on my face. Thank you. Those of you that raised your hand, I want to invite you to say this prayer with me. It's not the prayer that saves you. God has done that. This prayer acknowledges the growth and the change that has happened in your life. Matter of fact, I'm going to ask everybody in this room to pray this prayer along with us, indicative of the fact that nobody walks through Christianity alone. Say this with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. And I believe that on the cross, you took my sin, my shame, and my guilt, and you died for me. And I believe you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to follow you with all my heart, no matter what it costs me. And I declare that God is my Father. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit is my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Church, let's celebrate with those.